Welcome inside the igloo. I'm Tim Best. It's been a couple weeks since I last went on the air, but it's good to be back. And joining me now, I am so pleased and honored to have this next guy on. He is the Executive Associate Commissioner of the Big East Conference in charge of men's basketball. The one, the only, Stu Jackson. Stu, it's a pleasure to have you on. First of all, how are you holding up with this whole quarantine? First of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, the quarantine and the effects of the coronavirus, um, at least in my mind, uh, you know, is a little bit of a different experience here directly in New York City. Um, I happen to live in Manhattan, and uh, being a resident here, uh, it just seemingly over the past, um, you know, four and a half, five weeks, is something that you cannot escape and the evidence of the virus and its effects are everywhere um, you know if you you know there have been times that I've gone out uh, for a walk and uh, passed by a hospital only only to see one of the portable tractor trailer morgues outside of the hospital uh, that gives it a sense of reality um, you know I, I live in an apartment building and one of our uh, um, you know, uh, doormen actually tested positive uh, for the coronavirus, which then uh, triggered uh, having all of the staff in the building uh, go to their respective homes for a 14-day quarantine. Um, so that, uh, again, brings it home. And then, you know, just a couple weeks ago, um, I saw, you know, an elderly woman being wheeled out of a building next to mine. Uh, into an ambulance, which isn't unusual, except that it was being supervised by the New York City police. So, <laughs> you know, later to find out that she actually was suffering from some of the um, effects of the virus and, um, you know, just praying that she's okay. So it's, it's I'm holding up fine. Uh, I think like most people, uh, you tend in these situations to try and find uh, a routine uh, to try to keep yourself uh, mentally centered and active and, um, you know, wait it out and, um, you know, trust and pray in the authorities and, um, you know, um, you know, give gratitude for, our, you know, our health um, first responders because uh, that is something that is ever present as well. I mean, I couldn't agree more with all those points that you raised. And obviously, one of the biggest voids is uh, not having uh, sports to be able to, you know, view and discuss, even though some of the discussions that are being had, you know, like we're going way back, you know, in time, especially with um, ESPN, they're going to start airing uh, The Last Dance, the documentary about uh, Jordan's last title run in 98. Uh, they're going to start airing that uh, this Sunday. Uh, it's a 10-part series. But um, obviously, that all started in terms of when this whole shutdown began. Uh, the big momentous day was March 11th, um, the night where the NBA shut down completely because of, turned out to be Rudy Gobert testing positive for coronavirus and I, I can't even imagine um, what was being said about it just 
being in Madison Square Garden, in a full Madison Square Garden at the time, um, and then moving into the following day where all the other conference tournaments, they were dropping left and right, you know, especially the big ones, the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12. They were all canceling their tournaments. Uh, but meanwhile, you guys um, still ended up playing the first half of your opening game, albeit in an empty MSG with St. John's playing Creighton. Um, but uh, take me back to March 12th and that a- early morning into the afternoon inside the world's most famous arena and eventually coming to the decision uh, to canceling the Big East tournament. Yeah, no, it was a really harrowing time for all of us. And um, to understand what happened on March the 12th, you need to uh, understand a little bit the progression that led to March 12th. And in fact, internally, at the Big East, uh, we began having discussions, serious discussions, uh, with um, you know our athletic directors, as well as our board, um, as early as a week prior to March the 12th, to discuss a potential contingency planning uh, around the possibility of one. Um, continuing to play the tournament as scheduled uh, to um, continuing to play the tournament potentially uh, with uh, limited uh, fans in the stands and then three canceling the tournament altogether Um, the objective was to play the tournament as planned and and we hoped that we could squeeze the tournament in uh, all the way through March the 14th on Saturday, which is when our final would have been. But as things progressed over the week, it became apparent that as we stayed in contact with the local um, health authorities in uh, New York City, as we began to gather information from you know, other conferences uh, around the country with respect to their plans Uh, around holding their tournaments uh, during that same weekend. Um, As we listened to media reports, uh, as we conferred with Madison Square Garden, it became apparent that things were changing rapidly. And, you know, as we entered the week of the tournament, you know, on Sunday, March the 8th, where we had a conference call into Monday, Uh, March 9th, um, there were a series of calls each of those days to talk about what was happening, assess where we were with respect to playing the tournament. And we made the decision that, in fact, we were going to go ahead with the tournament. But then on March the 10th, um, we really started to, March 9th, 10th, we really started to carve out a framework that involved playing the tournament without fans. So we were poised to, to do that if it was needed, but we played our games on March, Wednesday, March the 11th, and, you know, they went without a hitch, except that, you know, that big shoe dropped. And that was uh, Rudy Gobert testing positive for COVID-19. And it became, you know, very aware, and Adam Silver at the NBA in retrospect, 
made a very good call in canceling uh, games in the NBA. Absolutely agree. Uh, until until further notice. And coming out of Wednesday night games, we realized that listen, there was a chance that we were going to have to cancel our tournament uh, and conferring with the other conferences. Uh, many of us began to uh, activate plans to play without fans. But then early the next day, on Thursday the 12th, um, you know, we actually had a board meeting with our presidents that took place 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock a.m. prior to our first game at noon on for Thursday's games. And when the board broke um, at 11 a.m. About that same time, we started to get word that um, the other Power Six basketball conferences were in fact canceling their, their tournaments. Well, the fact that we were playing at noon, uh, we had to, in very short order, assemble the board once again via conference call. They were meeting in person. Assemble them via conference call and make the decision to cancel the tournament. So that's how it happened that we actually played a half and, and terminated the tournament at halftime, one half later than the other Power Six basketball conferences. It was a whirlwind. It was, um, you know, a ton of conversations with many of our constituents, including Madison Square Garden, who were very much on top of this uh, from an information standpoint with uh, us as well as the local authorities. But then ultimately it became clear that we had to cancel the remainder of the tournament. Yeah, and, and to follow up on that, uh, first of all, what was what was it like to be inside of an empty and very quiet Madison Square Garden while an active D1 basketball game is going on for arguably the biggest and best conference tournament in America? And on top of that, um, knowing that th- this was the last of college basketball that we got to see this year, um, what overall looking back on it... Um, is it kind of a feather in your hat that you, you like to have as a conference and knowing that it, it was a very good half of basketball? Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly candid with you, I didn't experience the game in the arena. I was in the back of house and never uh, was able to step foot uh, in the open arena at Madison Square Garden. Uh, we were meeting very early in the morning uh, up until – uh, the time we actually canceled the tournament, and I never made it uh, into the into the bowl. But you know, the fact that you know we actually played a half of basketball uh, in my mind, it wasn't anything necessarily to be proud of because there, it was very chaotic in terms of trying to uh, communicate to the other schools that were potentially going to play that day. Uh, because we had three other games that were supposed to take place on that Thursday. So they had to, we had to communicate with them. Um, it was a very difficult experience for both Creighton and St. John's uh, to learn that as they went to the locker rooms at halftime of that game, that we were, that we were no longer going to be playing. Uh, it was a sense of uh, termination, a sense of sadness, and... Um, a sense of you know what it is that we do next so um, we didn't really consider the fact that 
you know, we were the only game in the country or the only game in town, so to speak. And our focus really was making sure that our schools were made as whole as possible. Yeah, and I mean, of course, you guys obviously made the right call to you know terminate the game and the and the rest of the tournament, and, and that turned out to be the rest of the college basketball season later on that day. And, but you know, watching at home, obviously, uh, that was the only game going on. And considering that was the last of college basketball we got to see all year, it was a very good half of college basketball. And you know, it sucked to have that taken away, but it made me really appreciate really appreciate it looking back on it because it was two teams playing for a lot with Creighton without one of their best scorers in Marcus Zigorowski. St. John's trying to make a statement. I mean, they would have needed a lot to make the NCAA tournament, but they definitely could have made a push for a postseason bid um, in their first year under Mike Anderson. Um, but... Um, for moving on from the bad, let's talk about the good. This was an overall very, very good year uh, for the conference. So uh, to, just to put it all into perspective, from your perspective as the exo- executive associate commissioner in charge of men's basketball, uh, how did you view the performance of the Big East this year um, compared to the rest of college basketball? Um, it, it was obvious to me that the year for the Big East Conference and our 10 schools uh, went about as well as we had anticipated that it would in terms of the conference's competitiveness, um, the quality uh, and depth of the teams within the conference. Uh, I mean, arguably, we could have sent 60% or 70% of our conference into the NCAA tournament. Um, the year was highlighted by some great performances, and we had the opportunity to watch two first-team All-Americans in Marcus Howard and Miles Powell. Um, and, you know, so you know, from that standpoint, the year could not have gone better. Starting back in November, where we performed very well in the non-conference, you know, so that we were poised during the conference season to have a very competitive conference season. But we knew that this was going to be a special year for us. Uh, which, you know, ending the year the way that it did uh, made it all the more disappointing. Um, you know, not so much for the conference office, but just disappointing for our players and our coaches and our athletic directors and administrators. It was a real downer. But it doesn't taint the fact that we had an outstanding season, you know, as a conference. I mean, I couldn't agree more, and not to mention, um, there was an outright winner of the Big East regular season title in the first six years after realignment, and this year, you had a three-way tie at the top, Um, so how did that speak to overall just the excitement that the league had, and not to mention with, I mean, obviously, Seton Hall and Villanova were... Um, expected to be at the top of the mountain in the preseason, but for them to be joined by Creighton, I don't think that's something a lot of people saw coming, myself included. No, if you recall, I mean, I mean, all three of the schools had outstanding years, and you know, the way that the championship played out was probably appropriate because they were three very high-level teams. But if you recall, I believe Creighton was picked either sixth or seventh in the conference by the coaches. Uh, in the preseason Big East, Big East Conference poll. And, you know, I don't think anyone saw 
um, the development coming uh, with the Creighton Blue Jays um, at the beginning of the season. But, you know, it just goes to show you uh, that's why they play the games, Tim. I agree. And, you know, what became apparent very early, you know, back in November and early December, was this team had a lot of offensive weapons. And then when Creighton got into Del Mahoney, and I personally had a chance to watch Denzel practice, you know, early in the fall. And it was evident at that time to me he was a very good player, a very high-level player. And I thought he would be a very good Big East player. But he was, I think, even better than many people expected. And you combine that with the perimeter play of Mitch Ballack, Marcus Zegarowski, and Tyshawn Alexander. And then the play inside of Bishop at the center spot it being six, seven and a half. Uh, they just started to play in a very special way, and uh, it was really, really good to see. And they were a fun team to watch. Oh, yeah, they certainly were. And I actually did the math. Um, at home in conference, uh, they had the best home record by far. They were 8-1, and one, and their margin, stew was plus 122. So they were winning games by about 13 and a half a game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they, they're lethal at home. And, uh, you know, like most teams, they shot the ball better from the perimeter at home than they do on the road. Uh, that's not uncommon. But what is uncommon about Creighton is the efficiency with which they score the basketball. And, you know, having those four three-point weapons, uh, you know, makes the defense play a little bit unconventionally. Uh, You know, playing against Creighton, you can't help off any one of those four guys. And it just was a nightmare. And I think from an opponent's standpoint, a situation where you had to pick your poison. But most nights, um, you were going to, you know, get poisoned. So, uh, yeah, just just fun stuff. Oh, oh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And they're going to be a fun team again to watch uh, next year. And we'll get um, we'll talk more about uh, next year and what the Biggies has in store later on. But obviously, we know basketball is obviously a game like we talked about, but it's also a business. And from the business perspective, the Big East looked like it performed very well, um, especially with uh, TV ratings. So uh, kind of fill me in and how the Big East performed uh, with the Power Five, if you will, with how you know how the ratings shaped up, especially with uh, the great deal they have with Fox. Yeah, you know, we haven't gotten the official final ratings um, you know, from Fox. Uh, we'll actually get those uh, next week. Uh, when we have our annual meeting uh, with Fox and a joint meeting with Fox and, uh, and our staff and our athletic directors. But, you know, it, it was obvious to me, I mean, we, we had the most exposures uh, on national TV uh, with Fox than we've had in recent years and combined with our national exposures with CBS. Uh, that in and of itself really bolstered uh, the ratings. And, you know, the Big East, you know, they, we get as we get more national television exposures than any other conference in the country. When I say national television, I'm talking about those games on, you know, big CBS games on big Fox. Um, so, you know, that in and of itself is going to really bolster ratings. And we had a very good year. I think Fox was pleased. Uh, we certainly were pleased, but you know, again, the credit really goes to our schools. We had a good product. Uh, with good teams, good players, competitive basketball, and great coaching. 
And I think that the basketball fan base sees that and they respond by tuning in to Big East basketball. And for those, I mean, kind of like Jim Jackson would say, like, if you don't know, you got to ask somebody when it comes to talk about talking Big East. Uh, but also something big that happened um, for the first time this past season was the inaugural of the inaugural year of the battle between the Big East and the Big 12. For, from your perspective, how did you view uh, that first uh, year of matchups between uh, your conference and the Big 12? No, you're, you're correct. This was the first year that we entered that scheduling challenge, and we viewed it as being very successful. And, you know, there's a great amount of synergy between the Big East and the Big 12, uh, you know, this past season because, you know, they have 10 teams, we have 10 teams. It made sense that you play, uh, you know, 10 separate games against high competition. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate this year. We got the, we got the best of the Big 12, and uh, it's not something that we promote or want to count. But, you know, out of the side of your eye, you're looking to see how each of your teams does in comparison uh, to a very strong conference. But, you know, adding further to that metrically, and the data points to that the Big 12 and the Big East were the second and third most powerful um, competitive conferences in the country. So it was a great matchup between two titans and uh, some really good competitive basketball and I'm looking forward to the next three years of that scheduling alliance, uh, and I think fans will enjoy it as well. Oh yeah, I I, I could I couldn't agree more, especially with uh, the addition of uh, UConn uh, rejoining the Big East uh, starting um, with this upcoming year, and uh, I want to touch on that later on. But let's let's get kind of get into a little of the basketball side for next year. Yes, you lose some generational type players with Marcus Howard and Miles Powell, and you're going to lose some other really great talents to the draft with guys like Tyshawn Alexander, Najee Marshall, to name a couple. But the transfer market has been very friendly to you guys so far. Uh, So how have you seen some of the big um, transfer acquisitions that some Big East schools have made with Bryce Aiken coming to Seton Hall from Harvard? Um, You also have... Alex O'Connell from Duke um, transferred to Creighton, and then news that came out yesterday with DJ Carton from Ohio State transferring to Marquette. Yeah, no, all of those are great pickups uh, for our conference, and uh, will add to um, you know the strength of the conference and the transfer market, uh, whether it be the grad transfers or transfers coming uh, that have to sit out a year, or you know if they're fortunate enough to get a waiver and play right away has become a, another a sector of the recruiting pool, uh, aside from signing you know, players right out of high school. And we've been very successful. Um, you know, just over the past five years uh, in the transfer market, I mean, I, you, you point to a player uh, like Quincy McKnight at Seton Hall who came from Sacred Heart, who, you know, became a real sort of staple in the Big East Conference at the point guard position, um, you know, so, you know, you look at what, uh, you know, at Providence this year, um, you know, they, they had a grad transfer um, that, you know, at the point guard spot that, you know, performed very well down the stretch and arguably uh, Pickens, Pickens, Pickens was one of their best players. So we've had some success there. 
uh, I think that really, you know, speaks to our coach's ability to evaluate good players um, from other schools or other transfer areas. So, yeah, listen, you know, uh, again, we'll probably have the preseason biggies poll again next year, um, you know, one through 11 this time, and everybody will have their opinion. And But when it's all said and done, it's going to be another competitive Big East season because, again, we are going to field a lot of quality players. We've got great coaching, which I think is one of our best assets of this conference. And uh, once again, I'd be surprised if the Big East wasn't one of the better conferences in the country. And I couldn't agree more. And you spoke to going from instead of 1 through 10, it's going to be now 1 through 11. And that number 11 is going to be UConn rejoining the Big East uh, from the American Athletic Conference um, and not to mention, they also have a pretty good head coach there joining the fraternity of great head coaches in this league already. Um, what was the process like of getting UConn to rejoin the Big East? Was it a shorter process, longer process? And uh, how excited are you for them to become an official member once again on July 1st? Yeah, you know, it was, you know, it was a very short process uh, this time around, but you know we had always, as a conference, uh, had discussions about the potential of UConn joining, rejoining the Big East. I mean, I can remember back as far as two years ago, and they were very casual conversations uh, that you know were more wishful thinking than anything else, because UConn, as you know, uh, plays major, uh, you know, major football. And uh, there wasn't any sense that while, you know, it was a pipe, you know, pipe dream at the time, there was not any sense that we, that UConn would join the conference. But then, you know, early in uh, 2019, um, some discussions uh, were had that became very serious very quickly. And it became obvious to us as a conference that it made sense to engage in those conversations and see how serious UConn's interests was in rejoining the Big East, and as it turns out, they were very serious. And, um, you know, the details were worked out. I, I think from the conference's standpoint, UConn brings a great deal to the conference in terms of just, um, you know, tradition, um, a rapid fan base, uh, a large fan base, uh, quality basketball. Uh, they're headed by a, a quality head coach, and Danny Hurley. Um, I think what they'll add to the Big East tournament alone will be worth their weight in gold. And more importantly, you know, there'll be some rivalries that will get rekindled uh, as we had in the old Big East. And if you look at it from Fox's standpoint, our network partner, uh, they've got some more quality content uh, that they haven't had. I mean, just say it out loud. UConn-Georgetown. UConn-Villanova. UConn St. John's it just has a big time ring to it and uh, I'm sure there are going to be some big time memories and games that come out of those matchups and we're glad to have them back I I couldn't agree more and um, I I grew up in upstate New York and you know I've been to countless games between uh, UConn and you know a team and only an hour west down the road from me Syracuse and I, I mean I know how intense that rivalry was uh, but to have those rekindled for the first time in seven eight years uh, it's going to be real exciting and overall uh, hopefully we'll get back to basketball once we finally get to a sense of normalcy again uh, hopefully within the next few months and hopefully we will get 
uh, sports again and college basketball again. And of course, one of the men who make college basketball so great, the executive associate commissioner of the Big East Conference, Stu Jackson. Thank you for your time uh, just to talk about the year in review and to give a point of view inside the chaos that came with this pandemic that we're all enduring right now and the sequence of events that took place when hysteria broke loose, if you will. So, Stu, thank you for the time. Um, Hope to stay in touch and stay safe as usual. Thank you much, Dan. Uh, Talk to you soon. Welcome back inside the igloo. A big thank you again to Stu Jackson for taking time out of his very busy schedule, even with the quarantine going on and whatnot to talk with me about his year in review with the Big East and really give a great inside perspective as to the events leading up to the cancellation of the Big East tournament and a great perspective on what it's like in New York City, an area that has been hit the most by this pandemic you know a lot of the stuff you know really resonate with me and you know he's one of basketball's most brilliant minds by far so it was such an honor to have him on so I kind of touched on it with Stu some of the incoming talent coming into the Big East this year from other schools around the country So let's talk about that first, and then finally, who's going to be leaving the Big East. Obviously, we all know who's going to be graduating, but there are some players who are going to be leaving early for the NBA draft. Uh, So let's talk about, before the outgoing, let's take a look at the incoming. The big acquisition that was made was Seton Hall getting Bryce Aiken. Obviously, you you got to have somebody that is going to replace Miles Powell and his production scoring the rock. You also need someone who is going to be able to run the point and distribute the rock just as well as Quincy McKnight did. Well, Seton Hall got that guy who could do both. And that guy was Bryce Aiken from Harvard. A guy that was considering Seton Hall when he was a high school senior Back in 2016, the same year as Miles Powell was a senior in high school. As a matter of fact, they visited Seed Hall together in the fall of 2015. Why do I know that? Because I was there with them. And although Bryce didn't commit to Seton Hall originally, he's coming home for his final year and... This is a match made in heaven for both Aiken and Seton Hall because he's going to step right into the starting point guard role. Seton Hall gets exactly what they want in their starting point guard. And now you're got a you got a really good system now coming up with Seton Hall even though they lose Romaro Gill, Quincy McKnight and Miles Powell. That's still a very potent lineup they got coming back. With Bryce Aiken, obviously, you got Sandro Mamukelashvili, Miles Kale, Jared Roden, and chances are, to call Molson after sitting out last year from Canisius, he will be your starting shooting guard as a redshirt junior hailing from Buffalo, New York. 
Uh, right now, I think Joe Lenardi might be selling this team a little bit short. Because right now, he has, um, he has them on the outside looking in for the NCAA tournament for next year at a very, very early projection. As far as I'm concerned, considering, you know, that starting five, along with Obiagu coming off the bench, maybe he can make some drastic improvement in the offseason. On top of Shavar Reynolds being a solid backup guard, Tyree Samuel is a backup forward. You know, this team... This team has potential to be in the top three in the league again next year. And I really believe that. And it's it really all comes down to dynamic, in my opinion. And the dynamic of that team, to me, it looks pretty good because all of the team's needs are being met in addition to Aiken's needs being met at the point guard position. Because he can still do his thing scoring the rock. And he can still distribute distribute it. Like a point guard. So it's a win-win situation. And not to mention obviously he's getting to play close to home for his final year of college basketball eligibility. Other big news. Jalen Coleman lands getting eligibility. Getting yet another year of eligibility at DePaul. And I think it's a good move by the NCAA because in his retro junior season back in 2019, he he ended up fracturing his wrist, I believe, and ended up missing the rest of the season after only playing less than 10 games. So the NCAA, they didn't grant him another year of eligibility right away, but Better late than never, and I commend the NCAA for doing this. Coleman Lands absolutely deserves another chance. And I think this sets this DePaul team up very nicely. Now, I know that Paul Reed will probably be staying in the NBA dra- draft after declaring for it. But this DePaul team can still be set up for success next season. The big question is, can they learn from the mistakes they made last year? I think absolutely. But then again, we st- it's like we ask this question every year. And we kind of think this is the year they're going to finally figure it out. And it sure, certainly seemed like last year they were going to. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. And a big reason why was because Devin Gage, the backup point guard, got hurt. And that hurt them with their depth at that position. Because, you know, no disrespect, but I mean... Oscar Lopez isn't a true backup point guard right now in the Big East and can be legitimate at doing that, at least in my opinion. Devin Gage was a perfect backup for Charlie Moore. And when he went down, the team took a major hit as a result. But getting... Jalen Coleman lands back and adding that depth, allowing Gage to come off the bench and be that spark plug as a sixth man. That is going to help this team so much, even if they lose Paul Reed. 
because you can still move Darius Hall in as a power forward, which he had to do in the final three games of the regular season when Reed was injured. And crazy enough, DePaul actually won a game when Reed was out. They've proven that they can win without Paul Reed. I'm not saying that Paul Reed isn't needed in order to be successful, but with what some teams lost, this can give DePaul room to climb up the ladder and potentially be a legitimate NCAA tournament contender. And I genuinely believe that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Some of the other transfer acquisitions... An under-the-radar one, but something I know of only because of where I live, is Providence getting Bryson Goodine, a transfer from Syracuse. And what do I know about him? Goodine didn't really get a lot of minutes for Jim Beheim, just an hour west of where I live. And Goodine actually had a pretty big moment in his freshman year at Syracuse as he hit a game-winning layup on a helter-skelter type play to beat Wake Forest back on February 8th. And, like, that was the signature moment with Syracuse. I think this kid has a lot of potential. He's a 6'3 guard. Now, I know the big thing is making sure that Providence has a point guard. Goodine is not a natural point guard, but Ed Cooley has been able to turn David Duke into a bit of a point guard in the past. He did that with Malik White before. It's doable. And Ed Cooley can work wonders. And that's been proven. And I know he has the potential, Goodine, to make an impact as a point guard with this Providence team. And they do have a lot of talent with David Duke coming back, A.J. Reeves, Nate Watson, uh, Greg Gant. And then two other major acquisitions by uh, Big E schools in the transfer portal. Marquette got a big one. DJ Carton from Ohio State only played 20 games this past season, made three starts, but he missed the final month plus of the season, uh, maybe uh, closer to two months actually, because he had left the team in order to tend to his mental health issues. And, you know, I commended him so much for that. It's really hard to do, but I respect the hell out of him for that. Because, you know, honestly, you can't really do what you love right if your head's not right, you know? So, Carton transferring to Marquette is going to help them big time, losing one of the all-time greats, not just in the Big East, but in the history of college basketball, in Marcus Howard. And also losing Sakar Annam. And now DJ Carton's going to step in and probably be the starting shooting guard for this team, in all likelihood. And Marquette's going to be returning, you know, quite a bit. Uh, McEwen's going to be a senior. Theo John's going to be a senior. Brendan Bailey's only going to be a junior as their power forward. 
And then you still got Jamal Kane, Samir Torrance, Greg Elliott. This Marquette team has potential to be really solid next year. I genuinely believe that. And then... I think another big acquisition... I I mean, it's not the sexiest of acquisitions, but just... Anytime you hear Duke transfer, it's kind of a big deal. And for Creighton, that was what they got with Alex O'Connell. O'Connell had some bright spots at Duke, but unfortunately, it didn't really pan out the way that he wanted to, or that Duke wanted to, for that matter. Just the way that Duke is, you know, guys have been able to come in and overtake his spot in the in the lineup and in the rotation. And, you know, that's kind of the way that his Duke career should be remembered. It's not anything that he did wrong. It was just that a lot of the guys that stepped in in Durham just found a way to assimilate their way into the rotation and into the starting line over lineup over him. And that's okay. So now O'Connell's going to find new life in Omaha. Not really sure if he's going to be immediately eligible or not. Especially with this new rule with the NCAA, but if he is immediately eligible, that is definitely going to help fill a void as we transition into some of the major departures, and I think the biggest one of all for the draft is Tyshawn Alexander. If Tyshawn Alexander stayed, Creighton was going to be a legitimate top five team in the country. But his departure knocked them down, you know, towards, you know, the back end of the top ten, and maybe even lower than that. Like, I don't see them as high as I did any, as I did before, you know? However, they still got a lot of returning talent from last year's team. Zigorowski will be back fully healthy. Jacob Eberson will be coming off his injury fully healthy. Damian Jefferson and Denzel Mahoney are back. But unfortunately, they're going to lose their go-to glue guy who sat out last year because of an ankle injury and electing to redshirt the rest of last season in late December out of respect to what the team was doing. And that was Davion Mintz who decided to transfer for his final college season to John Calipari in Kentucky. And I think that is going to end up being a big hit for this team. And honestly, I think it all but killed Creighton's hopes of overtaking Villanova and still being on top of the Big East going into next season. Right now, Villanova's got that spot, especially now with Jeremiah Robinson Earl firmly committing to returning to Villanova for his sophomore season as the reigning Big East Freshman of the Year. And I think that is so, so huge for them. And if Sadiq Bey stays, this team, I think you can make the argument that they could be 
pushing for the number one spot in the preseason poll in October. But if not, early on, I think they're in great position just with the overall look of their roster right now if Sadiq Bey comes back for a number one seed in the NCAA tournament and the top spot in the Big East and with firm control on that top spot. And then, obviously, UConn will be joining the league next year. UConn, after a bit of a rocky start in their non-conference schedule, in which they lost four games, one of which was an ugly loss at home against St. Joe's, who I don't even think won 10 games that entire season. Uh, So UConn also strangely lost to future Biggie's foe, Xavier. And an absolute classic in a semifinal game in the Charleston Classic back in November. However, they did pick pick up some solid wins. You know, they, they upset Florida at home. And, and, no, and I get that they lost to St. Joe's in an ugly one. At home just a few days before it. But, I mean, they cha- they really challenged Xavier in that one game in Charleston. Double overtime it went into. And then their other non-conference losses, they lost to Indiana, who made the tournament in my, um, in my bracket in the Jimmy V Classic by only three points. And then they lost at Villanova. And then in conference, they really... Turn things around for the better. I mean, they had a 10-8 and conference record. They were the number five seed in the conference tournament. And in my simulation, they ended up losing a tough one to Wichita State in the quarterfinal round and ended up cracking the field for the NIT at 20-13. and Unfortunately there, um, in the NIT, I actually did a simulation for that. And uh, just a spoiler, uh, UConn ended up losing in the second round of that to finish 21-14. and But UConn's got a lot of returning talent coming back for Danny Hurley. And this UConn team is going to be poised for success in this league next season. And I genuinely believe that. I think this team with, I mean, they were youthful. They showed promise at the end of the season, by especially when they upset Houston at home in their final conference, in their final home game as a member of the AAC. So, when there's positive carry, um, not positive carryover from the year before, good things tend to happen in the next season. And I really think good things are going to happen with this UConn team next season. I think they're poised to finish in the top four in the league at the very least. And so with that, that is how I'm going to wrap up this episode of the Igloo. Big things are coming for my final episode for the month of April as we get you ready for the month of May. The month that we're all supposed to be sleeping in, according to John Rothstein. So until then, this is Timmy I signing off. Thanks for tuning in. And be on the lookout for another new episode before the end of the before the end of April. So 
Again, thanks for tuning in. See you next time.